According to the Guinness Book of World Records, Bing Crosby's White Christmas is the number one selling single of all time. I understand about 50 million copies sold worldwide. And, and that's impressive, but I would suggest that, it, that it's actually impossible to name the most sung song of, of all time. I, I thought I would ask Pat. I mean, like, he's the music guy, right? His immediate response was, it's got to be happy birthday. <laughs> well, that was meaningless. <laughs> Get Pat off the slides, please. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> if, if I had to venture a guess, Amazing Grace would be near the top. I mean, can you imagine the number of times that hymn has been sung in church services or funerals or concerts since it was first written by John Newton in 1772? One Newton biographer estimates that it is sung about 10 million times annually. That's a bunch. The website All Music says that it has been recorded by different recording artists some 7,000 times. It has been sung by famous artists to include Mahala Jackson, Aretha Franklin, Rod Stewart, Elvis Presley, Johnny Cash, uh, Willie Nelson, and, and Andy Williams. And since I, uh, I mean, you might be surprised to know that it was sung also by Arlo Guthrie at Woodstock. Thinking they needed Amazing Grace, but now since I have been married, my wife has forever um, given me a hard time for liking Star Trek, that godless movie, she says, that is anti, actually anti-God. So you can imagine my great joy to find that even in Star Trek, Spock was memorialized after his death in Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, with the underscore of Amazing Grace. <laughs> so away, you naysayers. <laughs> this popular song has gone through a number of revisions and rewrites in both lyrics and tune. For example, it, it, is, it was associated with 20 different tunes until it finally settled on the one with which we are most familiar, about 1835. It has continued, however, to see new arrangements. I suppose Chris Tomlin's My Chains Are Gone is the most recent. And those of you who kind of struggle with um, uh, uh, lyrics being changed in, in hymns, did you, did you know that the last verse, when we've been there 10,000 years, wasn't actually written by Newton? but was added years later and then finally recorded by Harriet Beecher Stowe in Uncle Tom's Cabin. Now, many of you are familiar with the story of this uh, famous hymn. The first verse I want to bring to your attention reads, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I See, And so actually it's a bit amazing to me the number of people who sing that who don't really know what they're saying. Newton, however, knew intimately of what he wrote. He was born to a, a shipmaster and sailed with his um, father as a young boy. His dad actually wanted him to go to Jamaica 
where he wanted to work on the plantations as a slave master. But at 18, Newton was forced into the Navy aboard the HMS Harwick. Uh, within a year, uh, he, he led a very debauched life, tried to desert, and he was stripped to his waist and received eight dozen lashes, is what he says, uh, eight dozen lashes in front of the crew. Some other very troubling things that happened. He eventually was rescued by a friend of his father and began to serve aboard a slave ship called the Greyhound. It was then that he reached the height of his debauchery. See, this ship would travel from England to West Africa to the New World, delivering s slaves like, like cattle. Once, on the way back to England, the ship encountered a severe storm and almost sank. Newton says that he cried out to God for deliverance, which began his journey toward amazing grace. He was, it wasn't until years later that he actually became a, a Christian and, and renounced the, the slave trade. In fact, he, he went on to join William Wilberforce in his um, crusade to abolish um, slavery in England. But his days as a slave trader haunted him until his death. He could hear the cries uh, of those slaves. Is it any wonder being saved from that horrid life of sin, his awful crimes against humanity that Newton would write of amazing grace that saved a, well, saved a wretch like me. Now, there have been recent attempts at rewriting this hymn and, and others like it to make them ostensibly less offensive, right? I mean, what, what do I mean? That, that saved a wretch like me has been popular popularly rewritten to be, that saved and strengthened me, or that saved a soul like me, or that saved and set me free, all of which changes Newton's original meaning. But this is quite common today. I mean, really, come on, who wants to be a wretch? I mean, that's so offensive and self-incriminating. For that matter, who wants to be a worm? And so Isaac Watts' uh, hymn originally written went, went like this, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would he devote a sacred head for such a, a worm as I? That has become less offensively for sinners such as I. Look up Isaac Watts' song, uh, hymn at the cross, and you will find this rewrite to be more common than originally written. To this, I would make a couple of comments. First, a, a self-awareness of our miserable wretchedness is in keeping with Scripture. Second, I, I would suggest that the closer we draw toward Christ in his grace, the more aware we become of our own deplorable condition. You show me a mature or maturing Christian, and I will show you one who is broken and humble in the presence of Christ. Conversely, you show me a shallow and immature Christian, and I will show you one who is self-focused, lacks humility, and takes offense at being called a wretched worm. 
After all, they're not sinners and they're certainly not lost. Now, now I know the, uh, the move to remove such language is to make the gospel, I guess, more palatable, more acceptable, less offensive to, to non-believers. But any presentation of the gospel must include the truth of our sinful lives and horrid rebellion against a good and sovereign king. Attempts to minimize our sin and magnify our self-worth, which is in about half the songs that are being sung today, are not in keeping with Scripture. We are, we were, and are hopeless and helpless without Christ. Miserable wretches. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus made a way for hopeless, helpless wretches like me. And if we have an understanding of our deplorable condition and the very high price that God paid to rescue us, I, I, I believe that the gospel will become more precious to us and change our lives. I believe we won't be able to hear that word gospel without it moving us to the very depths of our being and our emotions. It will become as it actually is the most precious news that we are then compelled to share. This is what we find this morning in our continuing study of 1 Timothy. We know by this, our fourth week in this book, that the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to his son in the faith, Timothy. Timothy was acting as Paul's official uh, emissary in Ephesus, left there by Paul to, among other things, deal with false teaching. He addresses this problem of false teaching in chapters 1, 4, and 6. But along the way, he gives this young pastor instructions about how to structure the church in Ephesus. We are in chapter 1 where Paul has just exposed these savage wolves in sheep's clothing that we have found are very likely from among the eldership. Uh, last week, uh, as, as we looked at that, I suggested we don't really know what to call them or even necessarily everything that they taught. We found their teaching, just by way of review, to contain the following problems. First, it contains strange doctrines. The word is hetero-teaching, heterodoxy as opposed to orthodoxy. Second, it was rooted in myths and, and endless, or the word could be translated, exhausting genealogies. In other words, their teaching was not rooted in the rock-solid truth of the Word of God as handed down by the apostles. Their teaching led to mere speculations and fruitless discussions, which most importantly distracted from the primary purpose of God found in the Scripture, which is the salvation of miserable wretches like you and me. Third, they wanted to be teachers of the law, but, but, but they, they, they didn't understand the law. They abused or at least misused the law. Not sure exactly how, but Paul made it very clear that they violated the clear purpose of the law, which is to expose sinners as wretches and then crush us and drive us uh, in hope and in faith to Jesus Christ. 
Fourth, they taught a false asceticism. They encouraged abstinence from marriage and abstinence from certain foods. Fifth, they saw their teaching and this supposed godliness as a means to financial gain. In other words, they were just in it for the money. And sixth, we, we, we said we shouldn't see any of this as unimportant error. Like, come on, it's just a little off. It doesn't really matter because Paul is going to go on at the end of the chapter and name two of the ringleaders whom he disciplined out of the church. In fact, he says he handed them over to Satan so that they would be taught not to blaspheme. Chapter 4, he suggests that they had been deceived by false spirits and that what they were teaching was actually the doctrines of demons. This was very serious stuff. And so last week, he ended with a little digression. Having suggested that these false teachers misused the law, Paul then took some time to remind us what the law was for. The law is for unrighteous people. The, the law is for sinners. And then he went on to give a description of some of those sins. He gave us this very famous vice list. And then he ended that by reminding us the laws for anyone, which includes everyone, by the way, who does what is contrary to sound teaching, namely the teaching um, that is according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. You see, Paul was always aware of the fact that the gospel had been entrusted to his care. So whenever it was attacked, whenever it was misused, Paul would come out swinging. That's what he's doing in chapter 1. But then, as he often did when he mentioned the gospel, he, he would go off on, on yet another digression. Here's the point. Paul could not hear the word gospel, even if he was the one using it without talking about it. And he often then, having talked about it, ended with breathless gratitude. Because, you see, he understood that he did not deserve the gospel. Paul actually saw himself as a wretch, as a worm. This guy who wrote, you know, half of the New Testament books saw himself as the worst of sinners. Look at the text with me. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 to 17 say this. I... Thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Even though I was formerly a, a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the, and the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost of all sinners, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the king eternal, Immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This is a great, incredible celebration of the gospel. So great that Paul himself ends in doxology. Praise to this one who has offered such grace. In fact, here's the outline as we jump into the text. We're going to see Paul, the, 
the rather surprising recipient of grace. And, and then Paul, the, the, the example of grace. And then Paul praising this giver of grace. Now, even though grace is, is mentioned only one time in this passage, and really not in, until the middle, this gospel, I want you to understand, is a message of undeserving grace. And so as we begin, listen up. I want you to hear me very clearly. If you have ever thought yourself, or if you have ever thought someone you know beyond the reach of God's grace, listen to me again. If you have ever thought yourself beyond the reach of God's grace, you need to pay very careful attention this morning. Because the message of this text is no one is beyond the reach of God's super abundant grace. You say, you, you do not know what you're talking about. You have no idea what I've done. Don't have to. I know what Paul did. We're going to see it again today. What's worse, I know what I've done. And I know the dark, deceptive depraved corners of my heart. And the very good news of the gospel is this. If, Paul, if God can save Paul, if God can save me, he can and will save you too. Look at it with me. Starting with God's grace granted to Paul in, in, in verses 12 to 14. He says, I thank Christ Jesus. Stop right there. I he mentions the gospel, and the very first thing it, it causes him to do, it drives him to his knees in gratitude because saved people are thankful people. Because they realize that there was nothing they could do to save themselves. You see, we just talked about the law. The, the law, keeping the law, was an impossibility to us. And therefore, the law could never save anyone. Being good is not a possibility to you. If you are here this morning and you think that somehow you have been good enough for God, that somehow that, that your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, I got, I got to tell you something right now. I got nothing for you. I, I, have, I have nothing for you. Because you see, salvation begins by understanding you have nothing to offer. You are a wretch. The law and the gospel is not for people who think they're okay. Self-righteous people. The law's job is to break people in their sinfulness. And then the gospel comes along and saves them in the midst of it. And people who have been saved know this. We were helpless. We were hopeless. And God loved us through the glorious gospel. And he saved us. And he made us thankful. Not proud. Not arrogant. Not certainly not deserving. Miserable wretches saved by grace. And we're thankful. And I know immediately some of you are going, well, I don't really like to think of myself as a sinner anymore. You hold on to that thought. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, the one who did the work on his cross to make salvation available. And having mentioned the gospel with which he was entrusted, Paul says, I, I, I thank Christ Jesus who strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Now, now, now please notice the very all-important word order here. God saved Paul, then he strengthened Paul, and through that God-empowered strengthening, Paul was then faithful, and God put him into service. Don't mess up that order. 
Please understand, God did not look down from heaven and say, you know, that, 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 that Paul, he's a pretty upstanding kind of guy. He's a pretty faithful guy on his own. Think I'll use him. Nothing could be further from the truth. Paul, God looked around until he found the most lost reprobate, a wretch, and gave him saving and sanctifying grace, which made him faithful, then placed him into service. Would you please notice God's initiative in this whole arrangement? This whole thing is because of God's glorious gospel of grace. It ought to drive us to our knees in gratitude. And so then we are beginning to understand that no one is beyond the reach of grace. Because he saved me, Paul says, strengthened me, he placed me in his service. He did all of that even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent aggressor. Paul uses three terms to remind us of his, of his former way of life. We spent a lot of time talking about this when we introduced 1 Timothy, so I'm not going to belabor the point. But, 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 but we read Paul's powerful personal testimony a number of times uh, in the New Testament, which communicates something to us. We can use our testimony uh, of grace and talking to people about what God has done for us. He does it a number of times. First time was when it happened in Acts 8 and 9. And Acts 8, he was, it says he was ravaging. It's, we read that he was ravaging the church. He was entering house after house and dragging men and women off to prison. Nice guy, men and women. He, in chapter 9, he was breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord. In Acts 22, uh, as he gave his testimony to the Jews at the temple, um, we read that he persecuted followers of the way to death. Nice guy. That's the one I'd pick to be on my team, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you pick him to share the gospel with? Hold on to that thought. Number three, in Acts 26, he gave his testimony to Governor Festus and King Agrippa, where he said that in raging fury, he pursued Christians. He persecuted them. He arrested them and then cast his vote against them. He, we read that he even tried to get them to blaspheme. What does that mean? He tried to get them to recant their faith. It wasn't enough that he denied Jesus. He wanted them too as well. Galatians 1, he said that he used to persecute the church of God beyond measure, and he was actually trying to destroy the church. There's a, there's a potential gospel candidate for you, don't you think? In 1 Corinthians 15, he again said he persecuted the church. In Philippians 3, he said in zeal, he was zealous about persecuting the church. And then, of course, here he, he, he spoke, uh, he refers to himself as a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent aggressor. A ripe target for evangelism. He, he blasphemed by denying that Jesus, the very Son of God, was the Messiah. He tried to get others to deny that truth and, and therefore join him in his blasphemy. Obviously, persecutor, he hunted down. That's what persecute means, to, to pursue, to hunt down followers. Tried to destroy the church. He rounds it all off with violent aggressor, which speaks of extreme violence and zeal. It even drove him to pursue followers of Jesus outside of Jerusalem and Israel. It wasn't enough, man. He said, I'm going to follow these guys to the ends of the earth. Nice guy. So violent was he that when he was converted, believers didn't want anything to do with him, right? God told Ananias, hey, listen, Saul is on his way. I've blinded him, but I want you to pray for him so that he would receive his 
sight. And Ananias, in Scott's version, says, um, isn't it actually a good deal that this guy's blind? Uh, others said, Saul, what, what's going on? Isn't this the guy who was trying to destroy the church? Later, when Saul went back to Jerusalem, Barnabas had to take him to Peter, presumably because Peter wanted nothing to do with him. Think of anybody like that? Beyond the reach of God's grace. It got me... Gave me pause. I wonder if people then saw Paul, Saul, as beyond the reach of God's grace. I, I wonder if they were so busy running from him, battling him, that no one bothered to share the gospel with him, so much so that Jesus had to make a personal appearance to Paul to save him. Just, just a thought. Paul says, I was... I was shown mercy, and that's in the passive. What that means, it's not something he did. He didn't, he didn't do anything. You, you don't bring anything to the gospel. You make no contribution to the gospel except your own sin. I was shown mercy. We could translate it, he was mercied. This whole passage speaks of God's initiative in reaching Paul. I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly and in, in, in unbelief. Don't let that throw you. Paul was thoroughly acquainted with the Old Testament and knew there were such things as sins of ignorance and sins of presumption, sins of presumption, things that you, you, you did even though you knew it was wrong. Here he says, simply my sins were done in ignorance in the midst of my unbelief. He's not excusing himself. I'm still culpable. I was still responsible for my sins. I still needed forgiveness. I still needed the gospel. I still needed to believe. Verse 14, and in the midst of that blasphemous, persecuting, violent unbelief, the grace of our Lord was more than abundant. And again, we are seeing that no one is beyond the reach of God's grace. But you, but you have no idea what I've done. No, I don't. But I know what Paul did, and he says God's grace was more than abundant. He actually takes that word abundant, and he adds a prefix to it, hyper. God's grace was hyper abundant, super abundant. It came in like a flood, and there was nothing that could stand in the way of God's grace. It is grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. It is grace that is greater than all of our sin. Hallelujah. I don't care what you've done this morning. You have not exceeded God's grace. It's super abundant. Along with that unmerited grace came faith and love, also both gifts of Christ. You see, when grace comes, it gives faith. When grace comes, it gives love. And he's drawing actually a contrast there because earlier he is, he is accusing these false teachers of having no faith and having no love. Now, why was Paul specifically chosen to receive mercy? Why this guy? <laughs> because he becomes the example of grace in verses 15 and 16. You think yourself beyond the reach of God's grace? Listen up. Verse 15. This is one of the best verses in the Bible. Nine words, uh, uh, nine words in English, eight in Greek, in which Paul sums up the gospel. Now, he starts by getting our attention. This is a trustworthy, this is a faithful statement that almost becomes a technical way of introducing a doctrinal truth that Paul uses five times all in the 
pastoral epistles. Um, uh, it's, a, it's a way of, uh, of introducing a creedal declaration. He's saying, we know this doctrine, we know this truth about the faith to be trustworthy, to be true, to be faithful. We know this, don't we? This is, this is true. And it should be fully accepted, or it could be translated accepted by all. The idea is this is so true, you need to accept it fully, or this is so true, everybody needs to accept it. I kind of leaned uh, to that one because the gospel is for everybody. At any rate, here's the truth. Here's the nine words uh, in the English that Paul uses to sum up the gospel. You ready? This is the best news of all time. Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners. That's why he came. Luke 19 tells us that Jesus Christ came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He came to save his people from their sins. All of this speaks of the purpose for which, he came, for which he came. All of it speaks of the purpose of his incarnation. Don't miss that. You see, he came into the world. It speaks of the fact that he came from, from somewhere. He pre-existed. Paul doesn't normally make a big deal out of, about this. John does it over and over. The, the point is, Jesus existed in heaven with God, the very Son of God, part of the Trinity. But he, we, we read in Philippians 2 that he laid aside his glory. That, that means he laid aside the majestic display of his glorious attributes, and he wrapped himself in human flesh and came into the world he created. Will you hear that? The very God of creation came into the world, this miserable world, it wasn't miserable when he created it. It was good. And it'd take us any time at all to make it miserable. John says, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. And this word became flesh and lived for a while among us. Why? To seek and to save that which was lost, to save sinners, to save wretches like you and like me. How do, how, do, how do I know that? Paul goes on. He came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. The word is protos. It's the first. It's the chief. It's, it, it's the worst. You see, Paul saw himself as the first or the worst of sinners. And again, we are, we are being reminded that no one is beyond the reach of God's grace. And now, now we need to stop here for just a moment and look at this. How did Paul actually know that he was the protoss? How did he actually know that he was first among sinners? I mean, did he, by some divine inspiration, review the sinful and criminal records of all those who had ever lived or ever would live? Uh, yep, sure enough, by comparison, I'm the worst. Don't think so. Besides, don't know about you, but I think I can think of some worse people. You know, we can always play the Hitler card. What about Lenin? What about Mao? What about Pol Pot? They kill, killed tens of millions of their own people. Seems like they're a little worse to me. Not the point. Paul was a terrible sinner. I'm a terrible sinner. And so are you. But comparison with each other is not the issue. We start comparing ourselves with each other, we can start feeling pretty good about ourselves because we can always find somebody worse. Not the point. When Paul viewed his former way of life 
compared not to others, but to the holiness and goodness and grace and love of God, he almost despaired. I am the worst. And please notice the use of the present tense. I am the worst. Paul had been saved and preaching the gospel he once tried to destroy for, for decades now. He'd written, I mean, we're like the pastoral epistles. He's already written everything else. And yet he continued to see himself as the chief of sinners. Redeemed, yes. Sinner, yes. Redeemed sinner. You see, a proper, not a proud, a proper view of self before God leaves you humbled with breathless gratitude. I'm always reminded of one of my favorite stories that Jesus told in Luke about the Pharisee and the tax collector. You know the story. They both went to the temple one day to pray, and the Pharisee began comparing himself to others and, and felt pretty, pretty good about himself, thought he looked pretty good. I thank God that I'm not like these other miserable wretches, these other sinners like this dirty, rotten tax collector, and the tax collector stood far away, would not lift his eyes toward heaven, but beat on his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And that's an actual translation. Not a sinner, the sinner. Because there is no other. When you stop comparing yourselves with others and start comparing yourself to God and His holiness, we're just the sinner. And we have nothing left to do but cry out for His mercy. Why did God choose to save Paul, this most horrible sinner? Verse 16, yet for this reason I found mercy, so that, here's the purpose, so that in me as the foremost of, of, of sinners, the worst of sinners, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. And we are being reminded again that Paul serves as an example that no one is beyond the reach of God's grace. You think yourself bad? You think yourself really evil? You are. But I have some really good news for you. God's grace is abundantly more than all of your sin. Which brings us then quickly to our conclusion. What can the only response be to such amazing grace? Worship. Doxology, a declaration of glorious praise to the one who has granted such grace. Paul often did this. When he would speak of the glorious gospel, he would also often be overtaken with gratitude and, and, and praise, and we get a glimpse into that. Let me read to you one other. It's found at the end of Romans 11. You, you, you know from Romans, 
you know that he's, he's explaining the gospel. And he does that from chapters 1 to 11. Chapter 12, he's getting ready to talk about the effect of the gospel. But in 1 to 11, he's explained it. So he gets to the very end and he cries out, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who can become his counselor? Notice, or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? What did you give him? What did you give him to deserve salvation? I know in all this self-esteem, self-worth nonsense that we hear all the time that you're really something special. You're miserable wretches. From him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. What other response can redeemed sinners have? Having reflected on why Jesus came to earth to save sinners, even the worst of them, Paul finishes, now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, to the only God, be glory, I mean, honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And we could spend a whole week on this. We won't. But he, he gives us here a description of God. He is, he is eternal. That means he is the king of the ages, not only in this age, but the age uh, to come. He is immortal. That means he's, he's incorruptible. He is forever. He is invisible in that he is spirit. And yet this amazing God chose to reveal himself perfectly through the person of his son. And he is the only God. Please notice there is no other. He's the only God. The scripture is clear on this point. And so to him alone be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen is the way, is the Jewish way of saying it is true. It's true. And so as we close this morning, my invitation to you is twofold. Number one is if you know Jesus as your Savior, to be driven to your knees in gratitude once again and to celebrate the gospel, the good news of Jesus who came into the world to save sinners, wretches like you and me. But my second invitation is, in a room this size, is to invite you to believe the gospel. To believe, you, you have thought yourself too bad. You have thought yourself too evil. You have thought yourself beyond the reach of God's grace. I have very good news for you. God's super abundant grace can save even you. One pastor writes, Christianity is the only religion in the world that is for bad people. <laughs> That's good, man. That's, that means I qualify. In one way or another, every other religion says people can come, uh, can become good enough for God. But what if we are not good enough? What then? What if we really are the worst of sinners? Then Christianity is the only religion that offers real hope. If we are wretched sinners, then Christianity is our only option. Jesus Christ is the only one who can or will save us because he came into the world to save sinners. Another says it this way, grace is amazing because it saves wretches. Not because it, it puts a, a final polish on really nice people. Not because you add Jesus to your already really wonderful life. You cannot be saved unless you are first lost. You cannot be freed unless you first realize you are enslaved to your sin. But the good news is this, while you are a wretch, amazing grace can save you. I want you to hear me very clearly now. There has nothing that you have done that is beyond the abundant mercy of God's rich grace. Let's stand for prayer.